Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey, this is Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Podcast with a little bit unusual topic today on conservation, but a very important one. If you are watching this on uh, YouTube, you'll notice I'm wearing some jewelry. I don't usually wear jewelry, but these are sort of special bracelets. They are made from the wires used by poachers in Africa that have been confiscated, and the uh, local ladies in the tribe make them into jewelry. And that jewelry is sold to raise funds for some conservation programs through the Shepherds of Wildlife Society. And we have not only the director of that conservation society with us today but this man is also a filmmaker a videographer of high quality and he has a new documentary out that is making big waves in the conservation community because what he has done is documented a story about african tribes people who have worked with outfitters and hunters to bring back the wildlife that was destroyed by poachers over the years. It's a really fascinating story, and it's making some important progress towards wildlife conservation across Africa. The gentleman of which I speak is Tom Oprey, filmmaker, and uh, he's had quite a 30-year career in the business, and he's really doing some impressive work right now with his Shepherds of Wildlife Society and this film. Tom, welcome to our Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. We are so tickled to have you. Tell us uh, about this project. I think I can pretty much turn you loose and just let you tell us all about it. I mean, it's a pretty amazing that someone would go to Africa and make a film of this quality, and you've done a remarkable job with it. How is it all uh, playing in the in the general population? You know, Ron, first I want to say thanks a lot to, to you and, and the rest of your team for letting me be a part of this great podcast. And, of course, Ron, uh, you know, you're one of those people I look up to because uh, you're such an icon in our own outdoor communications industry with all the wonderful things you've done and, and great content you've created over the years. So I, I'm kind of in your shadows, but I'm just trying to do something a little bit different. Uh, you know, you, you, Ron, you're a lot like my father when he was alive. You guys were, you know, he, he was out there pushing uh, this whole effort of how, you know, conservation is really uh, has come about here, our modern conservation ethos because of modern sportsmen, you know, starting off with Theodore Roosevelt in the turn of the century, George Grinnell and so many others. Uh, and, and really what we've seen uh, over the years is just a dramatic increase in wildlife populations and wildlife habitat because of that ethos. You know, let's face it, if we care about it, you know, we'll go out and take care of it and, and we'll make sure that it exists in, in perpetuity in a healthy way. And unfortunately, we're dealing with a world where uh, most people don't even know where their food comes from. Uh, uh, a lot of folks, you know, is there, have you ever had a happy meal? 
And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody's bought a Happy Meal for the kids, you know? And I said, well, let me explain something to you. There's nothing happy about a Happy Meal. <laughs> There's nothing happy about a Happy Meal. Here, if you got the cheeseburger or the chicken nuggets, you paid someone to raise and slaughter an animal to feed your kid. And without, and you know, and it's okay. That's okay. Because without the, that, literally, the death of over 80 billion land-based animals across this, the whole world and a 1.4 trillion wildlife uh water-based wildlife animals uh you know humanity ceases to exist i mean we live off of protein and it's a big part of who we are and why we are what we are today and so but we also have a situation where our human population is expanding we've gotten really smart on how to make food and store food uh, we figured out a lot of things with technology and medicine so we're living a lot longer uh, than, than we have ever in the history of, of humans being on this planet. And so with that comes a lot of pressure on the planet. So we, we hear stories every day about wildlife being poached. We hear stories about pollution. We hear uh, stories about, you know, rivers of, you know, that are literally tens and tens of squares, if not hundreds and hundreds of thousands of square miles of rafts of pollutants, including plastics in the oceans. And that's just our legacy. And, uh, you know, my father taught me as a young man that the, uh, the very first environmentalist was the hunter. And because we care about the land, we care about the animals that are on it. We, you know, I, I want clean water rivers and streams. I want healthy forests. I want vibrant wildlife populations that we can pass on from generation to generation. And let's face it, when we have biodiversity, when we have these healthy populations of animals, um, we have a clean, healthy planet. It's a clean home for ourselves. And so it's really been important to to come up with some projects. And, and so uh, I, I've been around the hunting community all my life. I, I told you my dad was like, you know, like you, Ron, was an outdoor communicator. And uh, I just saw, uh, you know, how we've gotten to this point over the last four or five decades. Um, you know, my, I'm a sportsman myself. I love to hunt and fish. Uh, you know, I grew up eating wild game. I feed it to my kids today. Uh, it's a big part of everything. I mean, we even have a French uh, foreign exchange student here for the last month. And every week we have two or three wild game meals for him. So and, and he's just all over it. He thinks it's great. So but I think it's important that we understand that because there's so many people on the landscape and there's so much pressure on our planet. And there's this huge disconnect, like I mentioned earlier. People don't even know where their food comes from. I mean, folks get up in the morning, they flip a switch, they expect the lights to come on. They have no idea where electricity comes from. They don't care. The next thing is they walk into the bathroom, they flush the toilet out of sight, out of mind. The next big decision of the day is the chai latte or caramel macchiato. <laughs> but that's not how two-thirds of the world lives. They literally live, you know, from, from meal to meal. And so... And with the pressures we're putting on the planet, we have to be smart. That, that modern conservation ethos, which took, you know, let's go back to the late 1800s, mid late 1800s here in this continent. And our European ancestors decimated this country and this land. I mean, we, we raped it. We pillaged it. We destroyed all kinds of habitat, all in the name of progress. And unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, some folks came involved and they, we, we figured this out. But now I think we're at a different point now in our our human history where worldwide we've got to look at some of these things and understand that if we don't take care of these resources, they're going to be gone forever. And uh, there are forces out there that are fighting to stop, uh, you know, our, our Northern or North American or what I call our modern conservation model. Uh, there are people out there that are, that are pushing politics on wildlife conservation. 
Uh, we're seeing it with even things like you know, over in your neck of the woods. I think it was an IP13, a petition drive right now. To uh, they're, they're trying to get signatures to put a, a, an initiative on a ballot in the state of Oregon that would make it illegal, an automatic felony. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You go to jail if you kill any animal, domestic. And so, and that, and there's efforts like that. And you ask yourself, wait a minute, what do, where did all the wildlife come from? Where are the birds in our bird feeder? Why do we have them? Why do we have the deer and our elk in our backyards? Why do we have such a proliferation of turkeys that in the Northeastern United States, they're considered a nuisance by most people. I, I did, I'm working on a project for Wild Turkey Federation and uh, they, we had a production we were working on in, in Rhode Island. And uh, on the video or on the uh, radio show uh, one day, they were playing a rap song about, I got turkeys in my yard. I got turkeys in my yard. Dang turkey. Of course, they were not saying nice things over the radio, but they don't like it. And it's just amazing how that that incredible conservation story is actually starting to become somewhat negative because of the proliferation of those birds. But but the reality is we don't have these birds. We don't have the, you know, the birds in your feeder. We don't have the deer in your backyard or the turkeys or anything like that or the sheep on the mountains if we don't have someone doing something about it. And that has historically been hunters. Those are the people who put their time and effort into it, put their boots on the ground and raise literally billions of dollars for, for, for economies all over the world. And so with that and knowing what I know about you know, what's going on with different habitats and ecosystems around the world, um, I got together with a bunch of other wildlife photographers and outdoor filmmakers. And, you know, we're out in nature all the time. We see what's going on. We're documenting it. Uh, and we see man's impact on it. And quite frankly, it's not very pretty. And so we all got together and we formed this nonprofit called the Shepherds of Wildlife Society. Uh, you know, we're utilizing our talents and our abilities and our content to try to educate people. Uh, it, it's really it's about reconnecting modern society with nature. I mean, we got a great movement going on with people wanting to harvest, you know, field the table, uh, locavore movements. I think we've got new generations of kids out there that are thinking, hey, wait a minute. I want to go ahead and source my food locally, or I want to go out and get my food through hunting and fishing or picking berries or uh, picking mushrooms, that kind of stuff. And that really harkens back to, uh, you know, a lifestyle that humans have done for a very long time. I like to say, Ron, that uh, uh, campfires mesmerize every human being in the world, and it has nothing to do with roasting marshmallows. And we've been doing this for a long time. And, uh, you know, with modern technology and the things that we've done, you know, we have a responsibility to be good stewards of the planet, good stewards of the land. And so that's what prompted me to do this project. Uh, you alluded to this film, Killing the Shepherd. If you haven't seen it, it's starting to roll out on various online platforms. It'll be on Amazon Prime next month. Uh, it's on Zumo. Uh, you can go to our website, shepherdsofwildlife.org. You can watch it through a, uh, it's through a, a paywall, but we're trying to recoup our investment in it. Uh, so we can make more of these films because really it's about educating uh, the 39-year-old housewife in Hoboken, New Jersey, who doesn't know anything about our modern conservation model. And uh, But these are the types of people that that they get it. You know, they're educated. They understand what's going on. And none of this is rocket science. It's all common sense things. And so what we want to do is create films uh, and other content that we can actually educate these people with, motivate them, educate them. And, and, you know, I think we can change the world. We really can because we have to do it because if we don't do it, we're going to lose all this stuff. But, you know, the film was something that just plopped in my lap about, I don't know, 2016. I was doing a, uh, 
uh, wildlife conference I was speaking at that involved a lot of the um, sustainable use folks, all the hunting groups and, and wildlife NGOs and in uh, Atlanta. And I, I gave a presentation about the perception of hunting with, to the modern modern society. And, and it's bad. It's really bad, Ron. I mean, people just don't understand why you go out and kill these animals. Um, and, and you got to try to put it in their perspective. These, like I said earlier, these people don't, you know, is it a chai latte or caramel macchiato? That's a big decision of the day. It's not, do we eat? Do we feed our kid? Do we survive? Where are we going to go tonight? I mean, you know, that, those are the kind of things that we're dealing with. So with this, with this film, I had a gentleman come up to me and say, hey, um, you know, he had kind of this weird accent. Couldn't quite place it. it was South Africa. It definitely wasn't Australian or English. And it turns out the guy was from Zambia, a guy named Roland Norton. And uh, he started telling me this crazy story about how he was sitting in his office. He's got an import-export business, working mostly in the mining industry in Zambia. But on the side, he was a professional hunter and was also the, uh, the head of the Zambian Professional Hunters and Guides Association for many years. And this woman chief came up and knocked on his door and demanded a meeting with him and says, I need you to come help me and my people. <laughs> He's like, I'm so, excuse me. And uh, <laughs> but what came from that was this incredible story about an area that that had uh, been wiped out. The wildlife uh, resources been almost wiped out because of illegal wildlife poaching. And in Zambia, just to give a little background, uh, Zambia has always had a, a very prolific safari hunting industry especially since uh you know they the 50s 60s into the 70s and the 80s 1987 they had a, the government uh discovered there was some corruption uh and shut down safari hunting uh, then again in 2001 and 2002 they shut down safari hunting because of issues within the government and you know everybody hears there's a lot of problems in africa and there are there are problems there but those problems those problems are starting to change because of people putting out and putting content out and being able to educate people and of course the governments are seeing, oh, wow, we're kind of in the spotlight now. Maybe we can't get away with some of these things. So, in, and in fact, in Zambia, they just elected a president there that uh, ran it on anti-corruption uh, uh, mandate. So, you know, hopefully things are changing for the better when it comes to their governments. But um, what had happened in this particular area, it's called the Lower Luano Valley. Uh, it's about five, six hours drive from Lusaka, the capital, which is, I don't know how many, you know, four or five million people probably in that neighborhood. And uh, what had happened when the wildlife, uh, the hunting was, was banned, uh, we had poachers that came into this particular area and literally set up villages right in the middle of the wildlife population. And they weren't growing crops there. They were literally killing and drying meat as fast as they could because they were close enough to the city that they could take those packages of meat back in and sell it as bush meat. Now, a lot of people wonder, well, what's, you know, what's the deal with this? Well, bush meat is a multi-billion, multi-billion dollar industry in Africa. Uh, we had uh, a soccer coach uh, come stay at our house last summer, a couple of them actually from the UK soccer team thing that they have going on. They run, they run this program around the United States. And so we hosted a couple of coaches and one of them was from Nigeria, the black man. And uh, I showed them some pictures of some of some uh, poachers with some of their packets of meat that they have, this bush meat. And immediately, I mean, this guy didn't live in the country. He lived in the big city in Nigeria. He's oh, man, that's bush meat. That's good stuff. You know, and you think about it. You know, humans have been eating wild game, as I mentioned earlier, for a long, long time. You know, people in Africa consider wild game to eating it to be a right. You know, that's what they expect to be able to do. They don't have any issues with it. And and so it's a complex story in that so much as in this particular area, 
people came in, they destroyed the wildlife resources. And, and at one time, I, you know, I talked to a couple of professional hunters that hunted this in the 80s and early 90s, and it was a Valhalla for the big five. I mean, we had the rhino, we had the elephant, uh, you know, a lot of Cape buffalo, a lot of lion and leopard. Didn't have those giraffes that you've got there in front of you. Uh, it's, it's pretty rugged country, Mopani, different Mopani-type forests and everything from brush to, to what they call um, uh, cathedral Mopani forest, so really old-growth forest. Uh, but it just a, a very serene, pristine area, it's not being mined. Uh, not being illegally logged or anything like that. And uh, when the chief knocked on Roland Norton's door, she's like, hey, you need to come help me. Well, her people were starving to death. They're subsistence farmers. Uh, the land in the lower Luwano is subpar for growing maize, which is the primary crop that they want to grow, which, you know, for your viewers, maize is native to North America, not Africa, but the Africans love it. Uh, and they grow it all the time. But maize needs a lot of water and needs a lot of nutrients. I mean, look what we've done with the, the Mississippi waterway and you go out to into the bay out there in, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, we, you know, we've overloaded because we're growing all this maize and all these other crops in the, in the, uh, in the middle of, uh, you know, Midwestern United States, you know, the end, end result of that is not only feeding us, but it's also destroying, uh, you know, the water around uh, the Delta and probably a thousand square miles there in the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico. So, but my point is that these folks, aren't able to grow crops very effectively. They were using the same corn year after year, you know, seed. They were using crop, you know, their previous crops as their seed crop for the next year. They didn't have fertilizer. Um, and the Nortons, uh, Roland had hunted out there in the late 80s, had seen all the wildlife. It had been a lifelong uh, dream of his to have a hunting concession area. I mean, and, and to give you some perspective, the lower Luano Valley itself, which is only about 60% of the entire valley. There's an upper and lower, but the lower Lovano is larger than the state of Delaware. It's larger than Grand Canyon National Park. So it's a huge area. And so uh, they, they went out and checked it out and they were like, yeah, we'd like to, this is awesome. But the people, I mean, literally there was kids starving to death when they got there. And, and Roland's one of these people that's like, yeah, we've got to do something. And he made a commitment right then and there. Uh, he had had a situation where he'd sold half of his, uh, the other, his half of his business to his, his partner and was going to semi-retire. Uh, so he had a little bit of money and these people aren't rich folks. They're not sitting around on millions and millions of dollars. Um, but they, they had some funds that they could put towards this effort. And, uh, there was no UN, there was no NGOs, there was no UNICEF or save the children or anything like that. The government doesn't have the resources to help them. So uh, he went out there with his son, Alistair, who is a professional hunter, full-time professional hunter. They looked at the area and said, yeah, I think we could probably help you guys. But the key thing for them was they wanted to go ahead and wean these people off of protein coming from wild game. So they built a fish farm, which was, uh, you know, that's, that's a very up-and-coming thing. We're seeing a lot of third-world countries uh, as a source for protein. Um, so they have six... 30,000 gallon above ground tanks that they utilize for the farming. They literally control every aspect of the fish's life. Um, so they, they can grow uh, a pretty sizable number of fish in each one of these tanks. Uh, they can't grow them to the maximum size because they're living off of solar and diesel generator power. So um, there's always a problem with power. So uh, they're using really nice uh, German made solar power systems, but still it's not good enough. Uh, they need to get on the grid someday, and hopefully that'll happen. But the long and the short of it, though, is that they also had to team up with the community 
and the community and, and, the, and the Nortons, you know, they, they literally waged a war against the poaching that was going on. And uh, by then, certain species had gone locally extinct. Uh, there were no more elephant on the landscape. There were no more rhinos, was, you know, black rhinos on the landscape. They were gone. Even things like puku, which I know you've been to Africa a lot of times. Puku is kind of like cottontail rabbits in most places in America. Not a single one existed. I don't think to this day anyone's even seen one. Uh, hard to beast, similar, similar, you know, well, these are our base species for the ecosystem and that, and that, that food chain for a lot of the animals there, the predators. And, uh, so everything was really hammered, but there were still some pockets of game animals left in some places that hadn't been hammered to the point of local extinction. So there were still some lions and leopards left. There were still some warthogs, impala, uh, water buck, bush buck, kudu. That pretty well made up. There was some roan in the mountains left over. And so that was the basis that they had to work from. And so over the next three years, uh, three and a half years, I just spent, you know, my time and money documenting what I saw happen there. And I let the people tell their story. And it's not where people are asking for handouts. They're not asking for money. Uh, they literally, uh, you know, they want to just help. Now, they're real proud folks, um, and they wanted to see a benefit from their hard work in wildlife conservation. And so within the first three years, I think the community and the Nortons collected over 12,000 snares, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100, 120 uh, homemade muzzleloaders and shotguns, which the poachers used to kill animals. Um, and, and you started to see a change within a couple of years uh, where you were starting to see wildlife Literally the first time I went there, I don't think I saw 10 or 12 animals in two weeks. Um, now you go today and you can see the hundreds of animals in a day, if not a thousand animals. It's amazing what's happened. But so, you know, it's really a great story. And it's a great story about wildlife. It's a great story about wildlife conservation. But probably the most important thing about it, Ron, is that it's a story about people. It's about the, a group of people having the ability to benefit from the hard work uh, and see those benefits like food stability, having a job so they can actually go buy food, uh, being a situation where they have access to healthcare, um, having an opportunity to have your kid get a good education. So there's incredible things that have happened on the ground, uh, since I first showed up there in May of 2017. And, and so we've literally, uh, we ran, we put the film together, uh, shot it out last year. It spent most of the year on the film festival circuit. And I'll be honest with you. I didn't think, you know, it's not a hunting film, but we do talk about hunting. We talk about its place in, in this model, this, this, this very, uh, complex area and the economics of that area and how it is an important part of that story. And, you know, and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, Trophy hunting and, and that people, I hate the word trophy, by the way. Hunting is hunting. I don't, you don't, you don't need to call them a meat hunter. You're a hunter. Okay. We're all hunters together. That's it. Period. Um, support each other. I don't care if you use a dog or a bow and arrow or primitive stuff or, you know, as long as whatever you're doing is getting a quick, humane, clean, you know, hit, kill on an animal. That's good. That's what we need to be doing. Buy your hunting licenses, pay your excise taxes and, and support conservation. But. I, I, in this situation, you know, I didn't think any film festivals, I mean, maybe a few of them might pick this thing up. Um, as you said earlier, I've been doing a lot of filmmaking all my life. I mean, I've been had a camera in my hand since I was 19. Um, not doing outdoor stuff per se. Most of what I did was, was feature films and, 
and uh, Discovery Shark Week. And, and then I got into TV commercials, which, you know, that's really where the money was. And uh, But my dad was always kind of there in the periphery of what he was doing, writing for Outdoor Life and Field and Stream and the things he did kind of, that really instilled me that, that, that conservation ethos that's in me. And, and when I wrapped up about 30 years of working hard in my side of the industry and the film side, I, I, I just saw all this stuff and I said, well, you know what? I'll use my talents for the Shepherds of Wildlife Society and, and I'll be a, I'll make films because that'll be my part. And so when this film went through the film festival, it was really fascinating because, you know, we, we applied to about a hundred festivals. You know, we picked out the ones we thought that would have some interest in this. And I said earlier, it's a film about hunting. It's a film about conservation. It's a film about, um, you know, the, the, the subject matters that are important to people in Africa, but more important to me, it was a film about human rights. And so we looked for film festivals that dealt with human rights, black, uh, black ancestry, that type of thing. And I'll be danged. We started picking up. Uh, I mean, it was like almost overnight. We started getting picked up by festivals and we ended up in, well, it got so crazy. I actually submitted to a few more festivals. We never got into Sundance and whatnot, because that's about who you know, uh, not, not about how great your film is. But uh, we ended up having 39 different festivals around the world select the film to screen. Now, of course, we're dealing with COVID and everything else, so not everything was in person. But the ones that were in person was great because we were able to do these screenings with live in live studio or studios or in, in theaters. And, uh, and being able to get folks... Uh, to ask really good questions after the film would run. And, uh, you know, and these are not hunters. These aren't sportsmen and women. These aren't country folk. You know, these are people from various cities. I mean, we were in Barcelona. I mean, we were in Stockholm. I mean, we were in L.A. You know, I mean, we're not talking about the bastions of community outdoor type, you know, populations here. We're talking about people that are back to the chai latte or caramel macchiato. But I call it the dumb moment. Almost 99.9% of the people that responded and asked questions, it was like, yeah, do we really have to kill animals? And we explained to them exactly what happens. It's a small offtake of there, but it provides so much value, not only uh, money, but the, the meat that goes to the local people. And even, you know, there's nothing that goes to waste in Mother Nature. I mean, let's face it, guys, nothing goes to waste. Something's going to eat it. But, you know, humans are going to take what they can that's going to work best for them and then move forward. But these people would sit there and they'd be like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's just like the old guy says in the film. What's wrong with these people spending all this money and taking the horns and the, and the hides home and leaving the meat for us to eat? And, uh, you know, so that has been really great to be able to take this film and, and get it in front of those people. We won 20 major awards, uh, a handful of them for social, indigenous, and human rights issues, which is, you know, I, now I have a platform to talk about human rights. To me, that's one of the most important things because, you know, we've talked for so long as, as sportsmen and women about how science is on the side of proper wildlife management. And it is. Without science, we're lost. But the reality is, is that goes right over the head of that 39-year-old housewife in Hoboken, New Jersey. You have to deal with folks on, the, on that one-on-one -on -one emotional level. And now we're talking about, do you going to have a job? Are you going to have food? Is your kid going to get an education? Are you going to have access to health care? These are all issues we deal with every day. So when I talk to people in the uh, North American outdoor media market, it, it, I have several editors say, well, we don't really, that's about Africa. We don't do things about Africa. I said, you should be doing things about Africa because this is about what goes on here. The parallels are the same. I mean, we look at, in, in, as where I grew up in Michigan, you know, a million people go hunting on opening day, November 15th. 
the money that's generated for those little towns all over northern Michigan, you know, outside of Grayling and Petoskey and then over, you know, over towards Alpena, even in the Upper Peninsula. I mean, it's literally billions of dollars that people are spending on gas and spending on hotel rooms and, and buying things for their hunting and to feed themselves and the low, you know, going to the grocery stores and the restaurants. And that's a huge economic stimulus to those communities. In some cases, it's like, you know, here where I live here in Montana, Whitefish, Montana, everybody shows up here to go to the park. And in the summertime, that's great. In the wintertime, they show up to go to our ski resort. Well, without that influx of tourism, we, we wouldn't be anywhere where we are right now financially as far as a community. And that's that way all over the world, and whether it be Zambia or Montana or upstate New York. You know, that wildlife resource is important. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed putting the film out and, and getting this interaction with people that aren't part of our day to day. You know, like Ron and I, we stand, we probably hang with a lot of the same like minded people. And so it's nice to be able to talk to some of those folks and have them get it. What that real yeah. And that's why it's so important. But I still keep banging my head against some of our outdoor communicator friends that are like, well, that's really not pertinent to us. No, it is. It's absolutely pertinent to us. And you have yeah, to, I, we, we've, got, uh, we've got an array of, of anti-hunting people out there, organizations and entities that are raising, well, based on their 990 tax returns, I've heard from the, uh, the, uh, the United States Sportsman's Alliance. Um, somewhere they were about a billion dollars every year they have that they collect from these little old grandmas and people thinking that they're saving animals. And you and I both know that that money's not going into conservation because conservation is the wise use. And I will add stewardship of a resource in this case, a natural resource, renewable natural resource. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, of stories out there, you know, scientific evidence that shows that, you know, if you take care of it, it does pretty well. And that was the coolest thing about what I did over in Zambia is that when I got done with the film, the wildlife populations has exploded. You know, they were no longer being poached to the point um, where they were being decimated because you've got that snare bracelet on your wrist there. Every one of those is an animal saved in the wild. And, uh, you know, snare bracelets kill indiscriminately. They kill the, the plains game. They can kill lions and leopards. Matter of fact, there was a 11-year-old girl we featured in the film that was killed by a uh, crocodile. Uh, and she, uh, when they recovered, the, the, they killed the crocodile. And when they got recovered the crocodile, it had a snare wrapped around its neck so tightly that it couldn't feed naturally. And so it was looking for easy pickings. And that little girl on the side of the of the uh, riverbank there on this little sandy beach was out there washing dishes with her mom and her other siblings and just came up and grabbed her. And, uh, but that's how people live throughout a lot of part, you know, three quarters of people live in the world. And uh, we just have to be uh, better, better stewards of the land. And we have to figure out ways to work together because at the end, I don't know about you. I just want clean water and I want healthy forests and I want, you know, vibrant wildlife populations. And, and if you don't want that, then you're against our modern conservation model. You're literally the antichrist of wildlife conservation. This brings up a question, Tom, that I have never come up with an answer for is why does the, the media always want to focus on the evil hunter and never wants to cover the successful conservation stories that are pushed by and funded by hunters. I just don't understand that. If they sincerely are concerned about wildlife, environmental issues, and 
all the topics that you just so beautifully explained, it is, as you said, it's just not rocket science. You know, it's just the way the world works. This is nature, sustainable use of what nature produces. And instead, they want us all to wear garments made out of petrochemicals and eat food that's been grown with fertilizers produced by petrochemicals. And the whole program that they advocate is against sustainable use and maintenance of a natural resource. Why can't they understand that and help us instead of always fight against us? Well, you know, Ron, that's that's a great point. I mean, the hypocrisy is unparalleled in our world right now. But I'm also in sales and marketing and have been most of my life. And let's face it, how do you get six million or nine million dollar Super Bowl ads. It's because there's a whole shitload of people watching the Super Bowl. So it's all based on on you know an audience. And so how does the newspaper get if you look at the newspaper and you look at all the headlines, and this is you know I've seen this since I was a kid, the majority of headlines have to do with with bad things. Yeah. Violent. I mean look at Hollywood. You know, they, they think it's terrible to have firearms, yet Every single movie I've watched in the last handful of years has had a whole shitload of violence in it, shooting people, killing people, maiming people, blowing people up. And that's how they make money. And, and, and so when you look at the economics of our media, it's all based on having some sort of uh, some sort of calculated uh, message that will generate viewership. And so that's why, you know, and humans, it's human nature. I mean, look at the Roman times. I mean, we wanted to go and watch the gladiators, you know, cut each other up, blood sport. And so it's real easy to go ahead and take hunting, especially when you have this disconnect in society. I mean, let's face it, in our modern world here, I'm calling the Western, the modern Western world, um, I firmly believe most people are afraid of death. They don't embrace death. Uh, You know, most people aren't very religious. And so they don't have that, that, that way of that bridge of overcoming that concern about death. But at the same time, uh, you know, these folks are sitting around in a situation because they don't know where their food comes from. And they are just, it's literally plumbed in their heads. You know, it's in their DNA to look at violent acts and, and watch that and see what happens. I mean, I remember as a kid, they had the whole video series called Faces of Death. And I mean, it used to run at all the parties I'd go to, the beer parties. <laughs> Guys sit around and drink beer and watch Faces of Death and go, ooh, ah, wow. I mean, no different than watching the Colosseum, watching the, the Romans. And so I think when you, when you add that to the fact that humanity and, and the economics of our, our business, our media businesses, it's about generating clicks. It's about getting viewership. And so the economics of it is, is, is un- unfortunately ties right into our DNA. And so, you know, I don't know how we overcome that. I was interested in seeing uh, CBS Morning, I think this last, I think yesterday or maybe it was last week, uh, did a, a pretty long segment about conservation and why we have wildlife everywhere. And uh, they actually brought out the folks from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, and they talked about some of the things that, you know, basically our modern conservation model. I mean, it wasn't hard. It wasn't a hard story to tell because everything was right there in front of them. Uh, you just got to have the right people tell that story. And that's what we're trying to do with the Shepherds of Wildlife Society. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I think I've probably hit along the kind of the root causes of it. Yeah, you danced around it like we all do, but it just it still doesn't make any sense to me that they won't co- cover the story. It sounded like this last uh 
CBS program you talked about did a bit. And that's encouraging. And I think we're going to see more of it. I think there are starting to see a sea shift in, in people's attitudes, uh, especially after this Ukraine travesty broke out. There's some more serious issues at play. And that is the way the world works. And we need to start dealing with reality. It's just been a little bit too easy, perhaps, for too long. And your film there in Zambia, of course, exemplifies that because these people are living pretty much hand to mouth off of nature. And I think that's the story that we fail to tell or understand in our suburban cultures is that we are all dependent on nature. And whether we corrupt nature to make it blend and fit with what our needs are, our perceived needs with domestic livestock and crops and whatnot, or if we utilize wisely and sustainably what nature provides, those are really our two choices. We can all eat fake meat that we grow in a lab somewhere in the next 10, 20 years, or we can say, let us maintain the highest possible populations of native plants and animals and utilize those sustainably. And then we've got our cake and we eat it too. Why don't people understand that? Yeah, you know, and you're kind of hitting at some pretty pretty good stuff there, Ron, in so much as, you know, because of what we've done here in North America over the last 100, 130 years, uh, we're in a position now where we have these incredible national forests, state forests, national parks. We've got, we have those resources. We have that habitat. And we do have national forests that are, that are managed for berry and mushroom production. Well, why shouldn't we manage our national forest for deer production? Bingo. Elk pheasant production. Wherever, whatever that ecosystem is. And, and it's a matter of, of you know, when, when you look at scientific data out there, focus group research, we've done a lot of it. And other people have also. Hunting is not a bad thing for most folks. I mean, it, it, literally, we see 90% approval of hunting as long as it's done for the right reasons, which in, in this case is consumption. Um, whole trophy hunting story and whatnot, I rail against it, like I said earlier. You know, you're, you're pursuing an animal. You're trying to kill that animal. You can't waste the animal. It's against the law. Um, so, you know, you're not out there cutting the head off of it and creating a round. But we do have a segment of society that doesn't understand our modern conservation ethos. So when they see that man holding that dead deer or blood on a young boy's face or that guy holding that lion with blood coming out of its mouth, um, you, you honestly, you don't look any different to them than the ISIS terrorist over in Syria when they were cutting humans' heads off and parading around on YouTube, which you can still go watch today, which is awful. But the reality there is that because we have that disconnect, it is absolutely every sportsman's job, every sportswoman's job to go out there and share wild game with folks that don't not not folks that didn't get success, weren't successful that season, the other hunters, but the people who don't go out to people don't understand. And, and that, you know, we talked about raising animals or, or fulfilling this this uh, conservation ethos by managing our resources to the maximum. So we have lots of these animals on the landscape. But part of the problem I recognize we have here in the United States is that, you know, I mentioned earlier this $2 billion bushmeat business in Africa. Well, I've got a friend up in Scotland, Highland Game, where he has, uh, he sources all the surplus red deer out of these estates in Scotland and in the UK, uh, and has a processing business where he actually has I don't know, 15, 20 million pound contracts to supply packaged wild game meat, red deer meat, to the grocery stores of London. 
Yeah. So people can buy that. You go to Scandinavian countries. I think hunting has a 90, 95% approval because you can go hunt a moose. And if you don't need all the moose, you can sell that moose and they can put it in the grocery. You can buy moose in the grocery store. I mean, I think the number one dish or the national dish in in Sweden and Norway and, and Finland is reindeer, caribou meat. You can buy it in the grocery store. Now, I understand why we have uh, like the uh, Lacey Act here in the United States to do away with commercial uh, and market hunting. Uh, But I think we've got to start thinking about the fact that the vast majority of disconnect I see in this country and in Canada is because most people can't eat wild game. You know, even if you go to the grocery store and they say, you know, here's this wild venison, it's not wild. It comes from a if you go to Arby's and, and have the venison burger in November that they have, well, that, they outsource that stuff to places like New Zealand. And it's all farms. Uh, you know, the same thing. I think there's over 50 restaurants in Dallas that offer wild game uh, on their menu. And all of that's sourced through farms. It's not wild game. So the question I have, and it's something probably for folks a lot smarter than me, uh, but we have a disconnect with these folks because they can't eat wild game. If they were able to eat wild game, would that change the story? Would hunting be much more accommodating or unacceptable to the broader public? And honestly, Ron, my goal 20 years from now when I'm, I'm really old and gray is I want to walk into a supermarket here in Montana on opening day of pheasant season wearing my blaze orange shooting vest. And I want to be picking up some stuff for dinner that night just to add to the pheasant we're going to eat. And I want some little old lady to grab a hold of me and tug on my shirt sleeve and say, hey, sir. Hey, Mr. Hunter, thank you what you do for the pheasants and all the animals. Do you got any I can have? I mean, that's really what this is all about. Uh, so I hope I hope that, uh, you know, we're in a situation uh, May 16th the next month, we're going to screen the film in front of members of Congress in D.C. Uh, we've already screened the film in front of the old upper leadership of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, we just screened it last month with the Secretary General of CITES, which is the organization that oversees the trade of all, all international trade of wildlife. Uh, and they flat out, the Secretary General said at the end of our panel discussion that they're going to make sure that they put uh, these rural indigenous communities, these, these folks that are on the ground that are taking care of these wildlife resources. It doesn't matter if you're in Zambia or if you're on the Rocky Mountain front of Montana. Uh, you are taking care of that wildlife. And without you taking care of it, it wouldn't exist. But you have to see benefit from it. So, but, you know, we're, we're going to be, uh, we've been asked to present the film at uh, the next CITES meeting in, in Panama in November. Uh, so I'm looking forward. And of course, every all the anti-hunter groups show up to that. So it should be an interesting deal. But my goal is to give every single participant that snare brace that you have there at the same thing so that every one of them knows they are now responsible for saving at least one animal in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You know, and it, it brings up this crazy business that's going on now, particularly in Europe and England, where they're literally the governments are outlawing outlawing the importation of legally taken game animal parts from other countries, particularly Africa. And it works exactly against what we are talking about, which is indigenous peoples in native habitats, both supporting one another and being able to live off the land without destroying it. They would rather turn it back over to the poachers and lose everything. Yeah, you know, Ron, unfortunately, that's just ignorance. So you're dealing with people, again, back to these folks that the big decision of the day is the chai latte or caramel macchiato. In the case of the UK, Boris Johnson's conservative government, Boris's wife, 
uh, is a major campaigner for anti-hunting organizations. She has no clue that she is absolutely the, the antichrist of wildlife conservation. <laughs> but the reality is, is, is that we have, you know, these groups of people that in, they're, they're politicizing our modern conservation movement. And because of destroy it. Now we talked about IP 13 in Oregon, but we've seen politicians, both in the United States and Canada, uh, run on platforms that if you vote for me, I'm going to go ahead and ban this type of hunting. You know, no trophy grizzly bear hunting, no black bear hunting, no, no predator hunting. Uh, you know, those it's, it's like, okay, so you're going to do this. Nothing of it's based on science. It's all based on, on, on their, their personal biases and emotion. And the reason why these people are doing this is because they're using it just like conservatives may use the right to life. Or, or Second Amendment. They're trying to use it to gin up the vote of their base. And unfortunately, they're the Antichrist of wildlife conservation. They're the Antichrist of a health, in a health, bio, healthy, biodiverse world. And these people set that in their place. And that's part of the things that we're trying to do is meet with these politicians and say, hey, here's the story. Now, with the killing the shepherd, when the, the situation showed up with uh, Boris Johnson making this pronouncement out of the blue, it was nothing that they had talked about at any great length. But from what I understand, my friends over in the UK, he's having some political problems with parties and other things during COVID that he did that, uh, you know, the, the opposition wants to obviously remove him from power and he's getting hammered pretty hard. And so, as I understand it, that was uh, they just had a, one of their staffers just write up this thing and, you know, something about, re, you know, making it illegal to, to import 7,000 hunting trophies, 7,000 different species. Well, Safari Club's record books only, only uh, I think, designates somewhere between five and 600 species. So I don't know where they come up with a thousand. <laughs> Insects. Uh, it, it, unfortunately, it gets headlines. And uh, now Switzerland has already had gone ahead and done followed suit. And they're doing that already. Um, you know, we, we get in these situations where these politicians want to do whatever the political winds favor that day. Unfortunately, we have to showcase who they are and what they're doing. And we have to do a better job of it as, as sportsmen and women. And, uh, and, that, and that's really, that's what our job is here. Is, is, to, is to get the word out and to educate people because at the end of the day, these people are, are literally not wildlife conservationists. They're not habitat stewards. So what can our listeners do to help? Obviously, they should be joining the Shepherds of Wildlife Society, buying some of these braces. Some of this money goes right back to those villagers and the anti-poaching patrols, but it's much wider than that. You are operating worldwide to get this message out. So give us uh, quick information on where people can go to join up. What's come out of this initial film is some incredible initiatives. Quickly, uh, obviously, the anti-poaching efforts are really important. So we're working with other NGOs and aligning them up with operators on the ground all over the world. Uh, we're also working on a women's empowerment initiative. We've got women working full time making the bracelets. But also, we just uh, the Bering Global Education Foundation just gave us a grant. And we're going to pay for the educational fees in Zambia in the lower Lawano for every single girl for primary and secondary school this next year. So that's much kids have to, their parents have to fork out, you know, I don't know what it is, 50 quacha or something like that for the kid to go to school. It's not a lot of money for us, but that does have an impact on them. Uh, so we're working on that. Science is a big thing for us. So now we're working with Amy Dickman at the University of, of Oxford and Adam Hart from the University of Gloucestershire, both in the UK. And we're working on doing a scientific research, a full ecological review of the lower Luano. And we've got 71 GPS collars that have been donated to us. We're getting ready to do a, a, uh, 
a um, GoFundMe campaign where we're going to raise some money to refurbish those and put new batteries in those collars. Uh, so we've got some cool stuff going on in that rails. But education is a big thing for us. You know, we've got to raise enough money so that we can get these films out in front of folks. We're starting to roll out onto online platforms. And, and these films are not, this isn't outdoor television. I mean, the, these are hard hitting mainstream documentary films that really resonate with folks. And, they're, and, the, and they have a, a value out there in so much as that an entertainment value that people will watch them. But they're very complex and they're very, uh, they're very controversial. So trying to get through the Hollywood morass has been interesting, but we're, we're getting some traction. But when you, you know, get a chance to ask your, you know, your local newspaper, talk to them. Hey, if you've seen the film Killing the Shepherd, write up, get people to write about it. Uh, get folks to come to our website. You can make a donation there. You can get a, uh, any one of a number of snare bracelets and they're for men and women. So all you ladies, they're a great thing to have. I know my wife carries several of them around when she's at the outdoor shows and, and the ladies are like, what is that you have on your wrist? That is cool. Of course, you know, she has a couple of really nice that's next to her that are, that are not snare bracelets and, uh, and elephant hair bracelets and whatnot. And so she goes, what do you think? And eventually they, they figure it out pretty quick. You know, hunters don't seem to have that problem that, oh, hey, that's, that's a snare bracelet, isn't it? And really cool how it's all come together on it. And, you know, I just have to thank, you know, thanks to folks like you that are getting the word out. Uh, it's so important that we tell these stories and we have to understand this is not about, you know, wildlife in Africa. This is not about something you saw in National Geographic. We're doing stuff National Ge- Geographic can't do. You know, what they're doing on these incredible stories and beautiful cinematography of wildlife and different ecosystems. And that's wonderful and great. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really help those animals and those ecosystems because they omit the 10,000 pound gorilla in the room us the impact we have all that and you know if we want to leave this plant planet better than we found it then we have responsibility and i think sportsmen are aligned and in that position and have a track record of making sure that we do leave this planet better than we found it that's all great stuff and really appreciate having you on tom um i think we're going to do this again sometime because it is the most critical issue facing hunters you know we we talk about our toys and our gear and going hunting and and getting back to nature and man you can't do that if you don't have that nature to get back to so more power to you and your organization hey everyone thanks for tuning in to this episode of ron spoomer outdoors podcast we invite you to, to check out shepherds of wildlife and see this film it is an incredible documentary that really tells the story uh, and you will have a renewed appreciation, not just for Africa, but for conservation of wildlife and our hunting heritage. It all ties together. And I think working together and having the folks like Tom who push the story and do such a beautiful job of making it accessible is critically important. So once again, Tom, thanks for joining us. We will put some information up on the screen here so folks can see where to go and help you out and help all of us out as we continue to enjoy our great outdoors. Hey, this is Ron Smomer. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, hunt honest and shoot straight. anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv 
A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.